there is out in the foyer um, the booth that we are setting up every second Sunday of the month to uh, provide information for you to consider how you might be a part of it. There's some pamphlets that you can take, and there's lots of information on the website uh, as well. And as Ron was talking, I was just reminded of, uh, of Abraham and, and his treaty with, uh, or his work on a treaty with the, the king of Salem. And he said, I'm not going to take a thong of a sandal from you so that you could say that I made you rich. His desire was that God would be honored for what occurred there. And we certainly want all the praise and glory to go to God for this expansion, not our own efforts. Uh, But God uses his people, so we need to consider that. I have a series of announcements to make that are pretty fun, I think. First of all, uh, surprise, surprise, next week, uh, Pastor Josh will be here leading us in worship. So that's a little faster than we had expected. Uh, uh, Josh left yesterday with a Suburban and a U-Haul trailer, and he's on the road right now. Uh, so you can pray for him for his journey. Uh, he and his uh, father-in-law are coming up together, uh, and uh, they'll be here, uh, I believe, Tuesday night is their goal, and uh, uh, Josh hopes to begin working Wednesday. And, uh, and he uh, would like to begin planning worship services, uh, the, the musical elements of that, Uh, from here on out. And so I want you to hear his heart and his enthusiasm and their desire to be here and to serve this body, and that's exciting to me. Uh, And then uh, following next Sunday, he'll return home, grab his family, they'll go to Mexico for a missions trip, and uh, then he will return himself on the 7th uh, of November and lead us again in worship on the 8th, and the family will follow a couple weeks later. So that's the way things are scripted right now, and uh, we just ask that you would continue to pray uh, for their family, for the transition, specifically for the sale of their home, uh, for their missions trip, safety along the way. There's a few moving parts in their lives right now, as you can imagine, and uh, they need our prayer. So I would ask you to do that. And then uh, last thing I I get to do here uh, this morning is, uh, I want to invite, where's Kathy? Kathy Ramby, please come up here, lady. (laughs) She's not expecting this. Uh, Since Easter, since Pastor Keith's retirement, Kathy Ramby has graciously volunteered to uh, serve us uh, as a leader of worship on Sunday mornings, and we've gotten to coordinate a whole bunch, and that's been a lot of fun for the both of us. Um, And she's not yet done, but we're we're winding it down here. (laughs) And um, Kathy, you've done a phenomenal job. You have facilitated our worship, and you've done it with excellence and with skill. And it's been wonderful. And so we want to say thank you, Kathy, in here as an honorarium on behalf of the body. And it's too little and it's not enough. But it is uh, our heart's desire to say thank you. And I would ask you all, would you thank Kathy right now for asking me to Well, let's pray. We're going to go to God, and then we're going to go to his word, and uh, we're going to keep learning together. Pray with me. Father, just, I was humbled this morning as we uh, have sung about your holiness, and it is um, a fearful thing to sing about. On the one hand, we might sing about it too easily without thought and real appreciation for what it means. And on the other hand, we might actually allow an understanding of what it means for you to be a holy God to sink into our hearts and it would bring us to our knees. 
So it is a fearful thing to approach a holy God. Except that you have made it possible through Jesus. Uh, You have made a way, Lord, even for the Israelites coming out of Egypt through the tabernacle. You made a way for a sinful people to approach a holy God. And we know all that was built there and all that was put in place looked forward to the person of Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice for sin. And we are pleased and blessed to be able to stand on this side of the cross and once again with confidence to be able to, as a sinful people, approach a holy God because our Savior Jesus Christ bore our sins. Uh, And we say thank you. And to that, Lord, we would give you our whole hearts and our whole lives, all that we are. And we would come continually before your word to be confronted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to be followers of his. And so, Lord, I pray again that by your spirit you would teach us from your revealed word that we would be confronted with the holy God, his love and his grace, the reconciliation that we have in Jesus and that we would follow him wholeheartedly. So teach us again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, uh, we're in in chapter 1 still, a couple weeks into the series, still in chapter 1. That's how it goes. We're going to pick up in verse 18. Uh, Every now and then somebody will maybe share something with us, a truth or a fact or piece of information that can be difficult to believe. And at first, we hear it and it doesn't sound right. It's not consistent with what we know or what we think we know. We hear the words, we hear what they're saying, but it's unacceptable. It doesn't fit our perception of, of something else. It just doesn't square with what we think we know. For example, tomatoes are technically a fruit. And it doesn't sit right with me. I don't know about you, but... It doesn't seem correct. And all that I know about fruit, fruit is delicious. And tomatoes are not. <laughs> you know, fruit is something I would like to snack on. And a tomato is something I tolerate sometimes. You know. It doesn't seem right. Uh, in fact, it actually went to a Supreme Court uh, case uh, back in the 1800s. And I'm not kidding. You can research it the, to uh, decide over the issue. Technically, it's a fruit. I think for tariffs and trade and whatnot, it's called a vegetable, but, or maybe I have that backwards, but technically it's a fruit. Uh, something else, if you want to, I don't know, how, we have any motorcycle riders in here? Any at all? A couple? A few? Some of you? Enthusiastic group, you can see. <laughs> They're not even sure. Can I admit that in church? Yeah, here we go. We got one. I took a safety course a while back when I was learning to ride a motorcycle, and one of the things that they taught us is that when you want to turn sharply at low speeds, like in a parking lot or something like this, instead of leaning in hard, which you would maybe think that I've got to lean more, you actually sit on the outside of the bike and turn this way. It's called counterbalancing, and you can turn much sharper and actually remarkably sharp uh, by doing so. But it doesn't sound right. You know, the instructor's telling you this, and you're like, no, that's how you tip over. You know, that's, and then he shows you, and you think, wow, that's, that's how that works. Uh, here's one I heard recently here, and I'm still researching this. I haven't gotten to the bottom of it yet, so if some of you know, you can help me with this. Uh, but I read recently that the part of lightning that we actually see doesn't come from the sky to the ground, but from the ground to the sky. 
I don't know. Now, I'm still uneasy about this. This doesn't sound right. I've even done some reading, and I'm still not sure about that. And I imagine there are multiple kinds of lightning, like air to air, air to ground, ground to air. I don't know. But I understand it being a two-stroke process. And what I've read, at least, was that the bolt, the part that we see, actually comes from the ground to the air. I don't know if that's right. I'm still researching. Like I said, it doesn't sound correct. It's definitely counterintuitive. It Maybe the best case uh, or the most, most truthful case for it is that at times that occurs, which is still weird. Um, we hear statements like this all of the time. They're difficult to believe. They don't square with our experiences. They don't seem quite, quite right. And today, the passage that we're looking at here, Paul confronts the Corinthians with some counterintuitive truth. And he gets all up in their face about it. In other words, this is something that's not consistent with what they know or what they think they know or the way they've been operating. In their life up to this point, they have been placing a lot of personal confidence and trust in themselves, in their own wisdom, in their own knowledge, their own success through hard work and wise planning. Remember, uh, the town of Corinth was a new town. It was a place that almost anybody could come into and could work hard and make money and kind of uh, uh, increase their stature in, in this area. There wasn't uh, an aristocracy that held them down. You could sort of earn your way right on up. Sounds very Western. And uh, this was what they were accustomed to. And this had produced in their own lives a sinful self-centeredness, even in matters of faith. And so what Paul is doing in this first chapter of Corinthians is he is bringing them back to a cross-centered gospel. As we've been saying from the beginning of the series, that Corinth was a city that was bustling not only with sin, but it was steeped in self-confidence. They thought highly of themselves. They thought highly of their knowledge, of their gifting, and their reasoning. But here Paul begins to put them in their place. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating about this book as we think about it is, is right here in the beginning as we, we hear about the cross and we hear about the gospel and the crucifixion of Christ and all of these things is to remember this. This isn't an evangelistic book. This is a book written to the church, to Christians. This is a message of correction to self-centered Christians who are trying to dress up the gospel in different clothes. And Paul brings them back to the offensive and scandalous nature of the cross. And so the driving point of the message this morning is very simple. Simple to know, simple to understand, and a different thing maybe to believe. But that is this, that salvation comes through the cross of Christ. And Paul is delivering that message to Christians. So as you sit here and you think, yeah, I know that. I started there. I heard the gospel and I believed that then I want to tell you again and remind you again, just as Paul did the Corinthians, salvation comes through the cross of Christ. Look at verse 18 with me. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
And so the first point we're looking at this morning is this. The message of the cross cuts right to the heart of self-centeredness. The cross teaches us a really, really inconvenient truth. And that is this, that we can't save ourselves. We cannot do it. God had to send an adequate sacrifice for his own wrath for sin. Hear that again. God had to send an adequate sacrifice for his own wrath that was going to be poured out for sin. In other words, there's no amount of good deeds, no amount of special knowledge, no amount of right behavior or right pedigree can save us from the wrath of God that will be poured out for sin. Only Jesus Christ can shield us from that. In other words, we have to take refuge from God in God. And Paul will illustrate for us, as we're about to see here, that this self-trusting mindset of the Corinthians, uh, it isn't just exclusive to them. This isn't just a Corinthian condition. This is a human condition. This is a human condition. This is something you and I suffer from. Uh, One of the fundamental human flaws of human nature is self-confidence, self-trust. And Paul's going to show this by going all the way back to an incident from Israel's history uh, around the time of the prophet Isaiah over 700 years earlier. And he's going to remind them of that and draw out something that God said through his prophet Isaiah. And so the, the point that he's making here is this, that even Israel trusted in human alliances. And this quotation that we see here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Your Bible should have a little footnote which says Isaiah 29. Do you see that? And so we're going to go back briefly and just look at what this incident was. Basically what was happening here in the context of this passage that's being uh, sort of respoken here is that the nation of Judah has refused to listen to the prophets and to their warning. They've refused to come in line with what God wanted them to do. They refused to obey what God had proclaimed to them. Instead, they planned their own escape from danger by going to the Egyptians and forming an alliance with them. Instead of obedience, they found their own way out through a human alliance. And so the the passage uh, from Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14, listen to God's heart as he responds to that action. The Lord says, these people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. You and I do this kind of thing all the time. Instead of obedience, instead of doing what we know God would have us do, we take matters into our own hands and we do something contrary to the proclaimed word of God. And God tells us, I will frustrate your wisdom. I will frustrate your efforts and your intelligence. They will be frustrated. And so Paul is making his point here, especially to the Jewish believers in Corinth, illustrating from their own family history and showing them a precedent of this same kind of activity. And then Paul brings his argument into present day. He's he's showing them this is the nature of man. You did it back here, but now you're doing it in present day. And he shows that the Corinthians themselves trusted in human wisdom. And we've talked before about really the location of Corinth 
uh, and some of the cultural influences uh, around it, particularly the influence of the sophists. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about that. Corinth was located on this narrow isthmus between the Greek ma- uh, mainland and the Pe- uh, Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is hard to say. There's too many P's in that phrase. Uh, so it's located right in between the two. It's a key place of trade. Uh, there was a, a narrow little corridor there that they would oftentimes take smaller ships across land rather than having them uh, sail all the way around the Horn and take on the dangers there. And even today, there's a, um, I don't even know what you call it. There's a, a waterway. There's a better word for that. Thank you, a canal. That's what it is. This side's really on the ball. You guys, not so much. There's a canal. I'll look for help from you later. There's a canal to take ships across today. And... Um, and so a really fascinating place, lots of trade, lots of activity, and there was a lot of influence, particularly from the Greek philosophers, particularly the sophists, who really prized themselves on human wisdom and rhetoric and debate and a lot of these kinds of things. We talked about that last week. And I'm going to use a fancy word here, but basically this sophistry or this philosophy and this engagement of rhetoric was the epistemological value of the day, right? Epistemology, I know it's a big one. Epistemology is the way we know something to be true. It's how we assess the truth of a matter. The epistemology or the epistemological value of our day is really science or empirical science. That's really what's championed today. Whereas here in this particular culture, it was reason and philosophy and debating things out. Uh, The epistemology of the Christian faith really is revelation. God has spoken to us through his word, through his son, and through the created world. Uh, And it doesn't mean that we're contrary to other epistemologies, but uh, that's our particular value. And so Paul is speaking to them and sort of confronting their epistemology of the day, saying, you you think you're wise by this human rhetoric and this philosophy and this reasoning, this sort of bootstrap faith that you can sort yourself out and find your way to God. That's what was trending in their day and age. And Paul's confronting that in the nature of mankind. We think ourselves wise, at times even wiser than God. Self-centered, self-absorbed, thinking we can manage our own sin, thinking that our status with God is based on our own efforts. That kind of thinking was rampant in Corinth and in Israel in the days of Isaiah. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? It's exactly what Adam and Eve did when they bought the lie and they bit the fruit because they wanted to be like God. And this, is, this kind of thinking is alive and well today. This is our culture. This is, it's more than cultural. It's human nature. And Paul is going to remind them that the cross shatters this notion. Paul is sending them a humbling message. Again, remember, he's writing to believers because of their personal swagger. Because they've moved away from humility. They've moved, they've moved away from an understanding of God and his grace in their lives and thinking themselves why. They're pat, patting themselves on the back for where they are spiritually. In other words, they have taken the salvation of God and made themselves out to be its author. I think it's also probably uh, important for us to pause and recognize what Paul is not saying here because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this passage What Paul is not saying, he's not saying that we Christians should be unintelligent, unstudied, ineffective, poor communicators, people who renounce education, philosophy, and the pursuit of wisdom altogether. He's not saying that we should be those people. In fact, if you think of the words of Jesus himself, Jesus said that we're to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and our souls and 
our minds. Uh, I like what C.S. Lewis says too, not in every word, but in this one. Uh, Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. I like that, classic Lewis. Uh, In fact, I would say Paul is a model to us in, uh, in his use of a lot of these kinds of tools as he conducted his own ministry. That is, if you look in Acts 17, he reasoned with the leading thinkers, really of any city that he went into, uh, and especially in the Oropagus in Athens when he went in there and he debated with the philosophers of the day. Uh, we also see that he used careful arguments in his writing, in his speaking. He utilized his knowledge of the scriptures. We just saw this as he went all the way back to the prophet Isaiah to make a point to his hearers here. He used rhetorical devices such as rhetorical questions. I think we're up to like eight of them now already in the first chapter of this book. So he used careful and thoughtful speech. He also commended the Bereans prior to coming to Corinth and ministering there. He commended them uh, because they not only listened with eagerness about what he said, but they went and researched it and studied it out to see if what he said was true. And he commended them for this. And actually, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he specifically tells them this. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And so we must understand that Paul is not telling us to cultivate a mindless Christian faith. Okay? That's not what he's after here. In fact, even prior to his conversion, Paul was, himself was educated under the training uh, of Gamaliel, the teacher, and uh, he used a lot of that knowledge and his skill in his ministry. But here's the thing that Paul would have us know. We're not to trust in these things, nor to pat ourselves on the back, thinking that we have found our way to Christ. We figured it out. We're so smart. We earned it, and we ourselves are worthy. Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us that the only way to reconciliation with God is through the cross. That's the gospel, and it seems that the the uh, Christians in Corinth here needed to be reminded of the gospel. And I would say this to you, believers today. We need to be continually reminded of the gospel. It's too easy, and too many of us think of the gospel as something that we heard when we were a child way back when something we responded to way back when, and that that's sort of the shallow end of the pool, and we've moved well past that now to the deep end of the pool, such as other things. I want to tell you, we live in and breathe in the gospel every day as Christians and as followers of Christ. We don't ever graduate from that. That's not the shallow end of the pool, that's the deep end of the pool. The gospel needs to permeate our lives today so that we understand our position and our status with Christ, and that it wasn't a matter of our own effort but that we would continually be reminded as a matter of the grace and mercy of a holy God. We live in the gospel today, and we need to hear it and be reminded of it today, just as these Corinthians did. Second point here. Salvation is found in believing that Christ has been crucified for our sins. Look at verse 22. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Uh, We live in a world of what Dallas Willard calls gospels of sin management. 
And I love that phrase because it's just a very good descriptive phrase. Uh, We live in a world that says, I can manage this myself. If I just balance out my bad doing with a little bit of good doing, uh, if I just try to manage my way with the Lord, if I just try to minimize what I do that's wrong, if I just try to bargain with God or negotiate my way through this, then I'll be okay. Virtually every religion on planet Earth, except for Christianity, is a gospel of sin management. But Christianity is different in that sin is punished in Christ. And that's really the offensiveness of the cross. That is, we can't save ourselves. We can't manage our way out. The wrath of God for sin cannot be assuaged by any trinket offering of effort or good works or sophisticated knowledge. The wrath of a holy God could only be satisfied in the infinite worth of his beloved son's death and that by a shameful cross. And, and here's why what Paul is pointing out, particularly to the people in his day. He shows that the cross is scandalous particularly to Jews, because if you think about what they were looking for, in the Hebrew mind, they were looking for a mighty Messiah. One who would finally come and save them from their political situation, from all of the oppression that they had faced. Uh, Ravi Zacharias has said it so well, I'm going to quote him in his entirety here. I'm going to read a small paragraph to you. He says this, To the Jewish mind, there was a cry and a longing to be free. In their history, they had been attacked by numerous powers and often humiliated by occupying forces. Whether it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans, Jerusalem had been repeatedly plundered and its people left homeless. What would the Hebrew have wanted more than someone who could take up their cause and altogether repel the enemy? How could a Messiah who was crucified possibly be of any help? And so the cross was really scandalous to the Jewish mindset. How can we have a mighty Messiah who died? And so that was scandalous to them. And then the second group that Paul highlights here is Uh, to the Gentiles, or especially the Greeks here. A crucified Savior is foolish to the Gentiles. In other words, to to the Greek mind here, particularly the mindset of the day in Corinth that we're talking about, sophistication, philosophy, learning, these were all exalted pursuits. These were things that they felt passionate about. How could a crucified, one who was crucified, possibly be a knowledgeable and wise person? A dead Savior doesn't sound very wise. As Spock would say, it isn't logical, right? It doesn't square with Greek or Vulcan logic. It just doesn't make any sense. How can we have a savior who's dead? Uh, and so Paul takes, here, takes time here to really demonstrate uh, the difficulty of the cross really for these two groups. And then he comes to the conclusion that he would uh, preach to them and proclaim to us, and that's this. That God is wiser and stronger than us or than we are. And I got to tell you, when I was writing this particular point in my message, I had difficulty writing this down simply because I thought, well, this is sort of a duh statement. You know, we sort of know this to be true, right? God is wiser and stronger than us. Yes, I agree. Check. Uh, The question I would ask us to consider is this. Are we good at believing it? In other words... Nobody's going to disagree with this question on a test. Uh, We know this in our head. We would acknowledge it if asked. Uh, We would affirm it in any statement. 
but are you good at believing it? That is, is it operational in your life? In other words, do you order your world around this truth? That God is wiser and stronger than you are. I'll throw out a few scenarios for you to consider. Uh, If you're single and you're a Christian, the Bible says that you are not to be unequally yoked. It says that you are to pursue uh, a relationship and, and God willing, a marriage with a believer. That, that's what you're taught. But you may, in your singleness, in your loneliness, in your desire for companionship, say, you know, that's maybe just the ideal, but I think I know better. I'll just take matters into my own hands. I'll manage the situation. In fact, maybe I'll marry an unbeliever and bring them to Christ. It'll be an evangelistic effort. How easy to cut the corner and think that we are wiser than God. Uh, or how about in your giving? I'm going to challenge you on this again. Uh, we did a series a while back now on a culture of generosity. We talked to the importance of giving, and as it, is, as it relates to our heart, as it relates to obedience, we talked about setting aside a specific sum uh, that we feel good about, that we feel the Lord has led us to, and doing that with discipline, and being generous and trusting in God to supply our needs. And that's a, matter, that's a good matter for our heart. But when things get difficult, it's easy to say, well, God, I know better. See, I've balanced my books, and I know what I need to change or what I need to adjust, and uh, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. And I would just simply remind you of this, that God's the best investor in the world, and he won't invest in you if you don't invest in his kingdom. I can just promise you that. Scriptures are clear about it. But it's so easy to say, I know better, because I know the final bottom line. I know what I'm supposed to do. Um, We can do this in uh, morality. There can be issues of maybe truth-telling. And we know if we told the honest truth in this situation, well, it would be really hurtful. And we can say, well, Lord, I'm not going to tell the truth here. I'm going to tell some sneaky version of it. I'm going to skirt this. I'm going to highlight these points and I'm going to move right around the truth. And when we do these things, we are saying, God, I am wiser and stronger and better informed and I know how to manage my world are you good at believing that God is wiser and stronger than you are Um, the paradox of the Christian faith is that we do not get right with God through human effort but rather through surrender Um, and Paul would proclaim to these Christians here who already know this that the truth of the gospel needs to be a continuing reality of their life. Not just a line that they cross at the beginning, but a truth that they continually live in and live by. And Paul continues really to just pound away at the Corinthians and us uh, as he, as he can, continues to challenge this self-confidence that uh, is human nature. Look at verse 26 with me. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him 
that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And a really simple point here. There is absolutely no room for personal pride or swagger for those of us who have been privileged to be brought into the kingdom of God. There's no place for it. I think the point that comes across loud and clear is that it is by God's initiative that we are saved. The reality that we're presented with here, which is offensive, is that we are a collection of misfit toys that God is putting back together and restoring to himself through Jesus Christ. Uh, We didn't earn a place on the A team here uh, because of our excellent performance or knowledge or skill or what we could offer to the team. Uh, We were chosen by God while we were deservedly in detention. That's who we are. Uh, Which means that we did not get to this place in faith because of our own human effort or reason. Uh, The whole thrust of this passage counters the lie that we got it right. But rather it challenges us with there is a righteous God, a holy God, who has chosen to make us right with himself by his grace through his son, Jesus Christ. It is through the cross. And so it's not through human reason and it's not through human discovery. If you notice again this passage, verses 26 through 31, look at the agency that's at work here and look how often it's repeated for us. Think of what you were when you were called. In verse 27, but God chose. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And 28, God chose the lowly things. And verse 30, it's because of your smarts. No, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. And in the end, therefore, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Which brings us to the final point here. Salvation comes through the cross-centered gospel. And this is a truth that Paul would have believers be confronted with again. In the end, the point that he's driving home is that all of these self-saving measures that we are tempted to engage in, they're common to mankind. They go back age to age, culture to culture, all the way back to the sin of the garden. This sense that we know better and we can save ourselves from our own condition, the cross tells us we cannot. We can't save ourselves. We can't bargain with God. We can't negotiate our way out. We can't make up for bad deeds with good deeds. The symbol of Christianity is not the scales. It's the cross. Sin was punished in Jesus. You're in the family because of him. If you have not trusted in Christ as your savior, then I hope you have been, and I mean this lovingly, offended by the cross. I hope you've been confronted with the reality that as much as you might think that you're okay until you've trusted with Christ, you're still in need of a savior. And he invites you and he longs for you to be part of his family if you would turn to him and yield your life to him and accept his death for your sin. I want to lead us in a prayer right now. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, respond to this. If you are a believer, your response is humility and God-honoring worship, not just in the music that's about to flow out here, but in your whole lives. 
But if you're not yet a believer, then I want to lead you in a prayer that you might respond to the cross of Christ. So Lord, would you pray with me? Father, we are all but sinners. God, I recognize that because of my deeds and my nature, I am estranged from you. I recognize my need for a savior. I recognize that you are a God of wrath for sin, of which I am a harbinger. And I recognize, God, that I need a shelter. I need my sin to be paid for. And so I take the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on my behalf. I would accept what he has done and the penalty that he has paid for me. And I would receive it. I invite your Holy Spirit to come into my life and to make me spiritually alive. To empower me to live a life of obedience that I cannot live on my own. I choose today to become not just a believer, but a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's my intention to learn to obey him and to follow him in every aspect of my life. Lord, these are words that every person who longs to be with you in heaven needs to express. And God, I do pray that if anybody is here this morning that prayed that prayer, then that they would reach out and find a believer, a pastor, an elder, somebody that they would say, uh, I made this decision because God has drawn me and I need help to walk out my discipleship. God, I pray for those of us who maybe made that decision long ago that we would not be fooled into thinking that the gospel and the cross was something of our past. I pray, God, that it would be something of our present, that we would continue to live in and rejoice in the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the shelter that we have in Jesus. May we not pat ourselves on the back. May we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. May we see us for who we are, that we are sinners saved by grace, brought into the family of God by your will. We pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.